Good morning, and welcome back to another, well, good morning for me. Welcome back to another episode of the DD Geopolitics Podcast. I'm once again joined by my bestie and co-host, Yara, and today we are here with good friend of the show, Kavork Almasi. And Kavork, how are you this morning? I'm doing very well. Thank I'm happy to be with you. I'm happy you're here. Kavork is originally from Syria. He is an expert on foreign policy and obviously analysis of Syria and founder and host of Syriana Analysis. And we are obviously going to talk about all things Syria, uh, which I think in this particular conflict is um, unfortunately overlooked a bit because they're one of the more quiet actors uh, in this region. Um, so what I want to start with for our listeners is just a short kind of history of the Syrian-Israeli uh, relations, maybe just starting with Hafez and the Six-Day War and kind of what happened there and how that set the tone for their um, relations in perpetuity. Okay, so in 1967, Hafez al-Assad was the defense minister of Syria, but uh, the defense minister of Syria uh, doesn't really have an executive powers. He was, uh, uh, the chief of staff has the executive powers, the planning and executing the military powers and military affairs and putting the military strategy, whether it's a defensive or an offensive. Therefore, uh, despite the, uh, let's say, the opposition of anti-Assad that they claim because he was a defense minister and they claim that Hafez al-Assad sold the Golan Heights to the opposition, uh, sorry, to the Israeli side, I have read a book called Defending the Holy Land. Uh, it's an 800 pages book, and I think everyone should read this book. It is basically collecting lots of uh, uh, doctoral, uh, PhD, let's say, uh, projects in Israeli universities about the 67 war and about the 73 wars. And none of the Israeli documents, whether they're secret or classified, mention anything that uh, is close that Hafez al-Assad sold the Golan Heights. This is, a, this is a narrative sold by the opposition in order to say that the Assad father and the son, they are collaborators with uh, Israel and that tacitly they have good relationship with Israel. And because he sold the Golan Heights, according to them, then he came to power in the 70s by coup d'etat. In, in 70s, Syria was a very destabilized country. Um, before Hafez al-Assad, Syria witnessed probably 10 coup d'etats. Uh, every year they were uh, a government or two. Everybody is turning against each other. And it is a very turmoil region. And when Hafez al-Assad came to power in 70, he was a secular leader coming from uh, Al-Ba'as uh, Socialist Arabist, uh, Pan-Arabist Party. And he tried to modernize the country and take, let's say, the society and take it more into a, a, a secular path. In 73, he presented a, a, a constitution, and this was a complete separation of religion from the state and also... Uh, full secularism in Syria, which means uh, separation of the religion from state and that anyone can become a president in Syria, including the Christians, including the Alevis, including anyone, uh, the Kurds, etc., etc. But the Muslim Brotherhood was uh, opposing to these uh, reforms and they uh, rose against Hafez al-Assad with the support of, of course, the uh, regional countries, including the, uh, of course, the usual suspects, uh, Israel, the uh, the Americans, because they didn't want for Syria to, to become uh, modernized. They wanted for Syria to, uh, to to Islamize Syria, not to stay secular, secular, for example. And in 78, when Egypt striked a deal with, uh, um, uh, with Israel, Camp David Accords, and Hafez al-Assad refused to sign uh, a peace treaty because for him, Hafez al-Assad was a very, very strategist. And he said, we cannot strike singular deals with, with Israel, Egypt singularly and Jordan singularly and Syria singularly. No, we have to say it's an Arab-Israeli conflict. We have to combine all the files together and we have to solve them one by one together and strike uh, uh, an Arabic deal with, with the Israeli side, which means the Palestinians have a right for statehood and the, all the Palestinian refugees, they should return back and the Golan Heights should return to Syria and all the occupied territories before the, for, uh, the line of 4th of June 1967 war. So... Um, 
Anwar Sadat, he didn't accept that, and they started striking deals. First, it was Egypt and then Jordan, and now we can see the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and all of the uh, some of the other Arabic countries, such as Morocco, Bahrain, they're striking deals with uh, with Israel. Hafez al-Assad's relationship with Israel was, um, he believed firmly that he can become the uh, Salah al-Din al-Ayubi of uh, Syria. Salah al-Din, he was the uh, liberator of Jerusalem from the Crusaders. So he had even uh, um, a tableau in his uh, office uh, depicting this uh, war uh, when Salah al-Din liberated it. And this was uh, also documented by Jimmy Carter. He visited Hafez al-Assad and they spoke about it and everything. After 73, it was very difficult for Hafez al-Assad to fight Israel uh, alone because Egypt, uh, the strongest military in the Arab world, has been sidelined. And because Egypt signed the peace treaty with Israel, they also kicked out the Soviet Union from Egypt. And uh, accordingly, the Americans came and they started projecting their power over North Africa and the Middle East through the gate of Egypt. So Egypt was the key for the Americans to expand their uh, leverage and influence in the region. And Syria stayed alone in, in this uh, conflict against uh, Israel. So when the Iranian Islamic Revolution happened in 79, and they had an anti-American, anti-Israeli sentiments, Hafez al-Assad thought that it's a it's a brilliant idea now to uh, to side with Iran. And uh, Hafez al-Assad, in his mind, was uh, Iran and uh, Syria, they can together fill this uh, vacuum that Egypt left in the region. And we can see nowadays that Iran is the forehead for this conflict against the uh, Israeli side. And through Syria and through Iraq, we can see that uh, weaponry comes to armed groups, for example, Hezbollah in Lebanon. And Hezbollah has their own ways. I don't know how they do it, to be honest with you, but they, they deliver weaponry and expertise to the Gaza Strip. And I just remember one incident in 2011 when um, Hosni Mubarak uh, was overthrown. Um, Hezbollah had prisoners in Egypt, and those were the smugglers. They were smuggling weaponry through the tunnels in, from the Sinai to the Gaza Strip, and they were imprisoned. So when there was a chaos in Egypt, because of the overthrow of uh, Hosni Mubarak, commandos from Hezbollah, they were present in Egypt and they freed their smugglers from Egypt and they took them back to Lebanon. So there is, a, in my opinion now, in 2023, it, there is a network of alliances in, in the Middle East that comprises of uh, state and non-state actors. But the head of this uh, uh, alliance is Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, Iran, uh, non-state actors from Iraq and non-state actors from Lebanon and from Palestine. And we can see nowadays how the Israeli side is, uh, the, this war is not only exclusive in the Gaza Strip, also in southern Lebanon and also in Syria, because they bomb Syria all the time and they're threatening Iraq and Iran as well. So what, so we know that there was a kind of an understanding, but a contentious relationship between Assad and uh, Arafat. But how did, because we know that, and we know that eventually the relationship between Hamas and Syria, the Syrian government, fell apart. When did it fall apart? Why? And we know that, I think in 2022 is when they started to try to renormalize those relations. So when was the fallout and, and why? <clears throat> First of all, the fallout with the PLO started in the 90s because the PLO chose the Oslo Accords and they excluded Syria from these talks. And uh, Syria also had its, uh, let's say, confrontation with the PLO in Lebanon. Let's remember the PLO. I mean, Yasser Arafat uh, was a hero for the Palestinians, but also he was not a really hero for some of the Lebanese people, for example, in Lebanon. And Syrian army, when intervened in, in Lebanon, they had their clashes with the PLO because the PLO was also chasing the Christians in, uh, in, in, in Lebanon, the Christian militias. At the beginning, Syria sided with the Christian militias against the PLO and then sided with the PLO. Syria basically fought everyone in, in, uh, in Lebanon because it was a struggle of power over Lebanon. And they came to Lebanon because Israelis invaded Lebanon and they were occupying Beirut. And Syria couldn't leave Lebanon in the hands of Israel because if Israel controls Lebanon, that means they can project their uh, power inside Syria and they can start influencing inside the or, or so divisions in the domestic affairs of Syria. So 
Remember what happened in 2005 when Halafiq al-Habibi was assassinated and the Syrian army uh, uh, withdrew from Lebanon. Uh, only five years later, they started the regime change war in Syria. So the moment Syria withdrew from Lebanon, uh, Syria lost its one of its uh, buffer zones against Israel. And Israel and the United States, they uh, gained huge influence in Lebanon through what is called the 14 March coalition. Uh, for, yeah, 14 March, I think 14 March coalition, yeah. So the pro-American camp there. And it was quite obvious that when the withdrawal happened of Syria from Lebanon, this war will move from Lebanon into Syria. And we have seen that in just five years. First, it was in 2006, they wanted to destroy Hezbollah so that they can easily... Uh, let's say, destroy Syria afterwards, but they couldn't with Hezbollah and they moved to Plan B, which is trying to destabilize Syria and regime change war. And now Hezbollah came to help Syria, just like Syria came to help uh, Hezbollah in 2006 war. With Hamas, everybody knew that Hamas is a Muslim Brotherhood organization. And Syria had a very toxic relationship with the Muslim Brotherhood, rightfully so. I would say uh, Muslim Brotherhood is a very... Uh, in my opinion, regressive power, and they always tried to Islamize the Syrian society and try to take it like 14 centuries back. And it's it's it doesn't work in the Syrian society, which you have a lots of ethnicities, religions, and uh, different sects uh, in the country. And they engaged in acts of uh, terrorism in the 80s. And my father was in the military back then. He he tells me all the stories that the Muslim Brotherhood did sectarian violence against the Christians, against the Alawites. It is unacceptable, in my opinion, for the Muslim Brotherhood to flourish in the region and gain uh, momentum or power, whether it's in Egypt, whether it's in in Syria, etc. But with the with the Hamas, Syria perceived Hamas as part of the armed struggle against Israel. So they see it from a strategic perspective that there is a group, armed group, whether they are Muslim Brotherhood or not, they are fighting against Israel. So they hosted their offices in Syria, and thanks to this relationship with Hamas, they opened border relationship with Qatar and with Turkey, because Qatar and Turkey, they are the main sponsors now of Hamas. The, everything they say about Iran and Hamas is not really accurate. The main sponsors of Hamas are Turkey, especially the ideological sponsorship there from Turkey and from Qatar and financial also from Qatar. So uh, Syria thought that uh, if it opens up to Hamas, uh, they can gain one, uh, let's say, pressure card against Israel and another uh, diplomatic card with with uh, Qatar and Turkey. And it, it happened that way. They had very good relationship with Qatar and Turkey up until 2011. In 2011, when there was the CIA engineered the covert operation in Syria under the title Timber Sycamore, the Hamas, they had, they, they had their decision and they said they're going to side with Turkey and with Qatar. And accordingly, Syria asked them to leave uh, Damascus and they emptied their offices and they left to Turkey and to, to Qatar completely. Although geographically speaking, it doesn't make any sense for the leadership of Hamas to sit in Qatar, which hosts the biggest American uh, base. And it's considered the uh, Joe Biden um, labeled uh, Qatar as the a major or main non-NATO ally of the United States. So I don't understand what are they doing in Qatar, uh, to be honest. And some of the elements of Hamas, the, mo the more radical elements of Hamas, they also engaged uh, in acts of hostilities against the Syrian army in Ali Mukham, and they fought against the Syrian army. And they were uh, people who were close to Khaled Mish'al and Ismail Haniya, they were fighting against the Syrian army, and the Syrian army had no choice but to fight against them. Now, in 2023, when this war started in Gaza again, Assad was asked by some of his visitors, what does he think about this case? And this is just an information that I received from people who told people, uh, those people met with Assad just two days after the 7th of October. I think it was on the 9th of October. The The decision is very clear in Syria. We, uh, Syria is part of the what they call the axis of resistance. And if this war expands, they will definitely engage in in, in war against uh, Israel. They will try to defend themselves but and also liberate the Golan Heights. But at the same time, they don't really trust 100% Hamas. Uh, and when I say Hamas, it's the leadership of Hamas. Qatar uh, al-Qassam, in in uh, Qassam Brigade in in uh, Gaza Strip, they never made any anti-Syria statements in the past few years, and uh, most of their let's say weaponry, because they they come from Iran and from Hezbollah, they don't really have uh, they they didn't antagonize let's say uh, the Syrian side. So let's see how is this will develop in the next few days.
So we'll have two more background questions and then we'll throw it to Yara to bring us to the present. So Saudi Arabia broke up relations with uh, Syria during the civil war. I think recently they tr they're starting to try to normalize those, but don't you think that this particular conflict puts a wrench into all of that? Um, how, how tenuous is the relationship between Saudi and Syria? Um, in, in regards to what's going on, does this make those, so sort of that normalization process kind of peter out? Actually, Saudi Arabia is a very interesting case because Saudi Arabia in the past years was different from the Saudi Arabia, the current Saudi Arabia under MBS. Saudi Arabia was very uh, subjugated by the Americans, probably willingly so. I don't know why they put all their eggs in the basket of the Americans, but it seems after uh, MBS came to power and he tried to he eliminated lots of emirs and lots of billionaires and put them in this hotel and killed Khashoggi and this was the in my opinion the democrat the because in the United States the Democrats and the Republicans those were the Democrats wing inside the uh, the Saudi leadership and he cut their wings and they started pursuing very good relationship with the Republicans and at the same time they said we want to change course of Saudi Arabia. We have a huge well, welfare. We have huge um, uh, oil revenues and everything. Why don't we invest this for the sake of our people? We modernize our country. We open up to the outside world, etc. And uh, uh, MBS, he had a vision. He has a vision for the region, and he wants to host the World Cup, and he wants to build what is called the smart cities and everything. And he cannot do that if there is war and destruction and lots of, the, uh, let's say, uh, carnage in the region. So he wanted to, for example, end the war in Yemen and strike a deal with Iran. And also, uh, he tried to balance his relationship between the East and the West. He's pursuing good relationship with China and uh, Russia, and at the same time with the Americans. But all this also is happening in parallel with his attempt to normalize relationship with Israel, and also normalize relationship with Syria. So he's pursuing relations with everyone in the region. From the Syrian point of view, in any case, in the past decade, Saudi Arabia didn't play any positive role in the Arab-Israeli conflict. Uh, the only wish from the Syrian side was that please do not intervene against us. Like, be neutral, but do not intervene against us. And at the current moment, we can see that the uh, Saudis, uh, they're not really being critical of uh, Hamas, although they are tacitly, again, diplomatically supporting uh, Israel. But if we compare it to 2006 war, Saudi Arabia has embedded itself with Israel against uh, Hezbollah, for example, which is something we don't see clearly now in 2023. Uh, Syria sees that Saudi Arabia is an important country. It's an important Sunni country. And uh, because the majority of the so-called rebel groups, they were Wahhabis and they were, their ideology was uh, uh, inspired by Saudi Wahhabism. So it's a, it is a good idea for Syria to have good relationship with Saudi Arabia in order to appease uh, these uh, people in Syria. And this is something that Saudis are working on, in my opinion, through their contacts in the religious scene in Syria. But nowadays, uh, because Saudi Arabia opened its uh, consulate and they will open their embassy in Syria. There are just normal relations. I wouldn't say they are good relationships between Syria and uh, and Saudi Arabia. They are good relationships and there are talks between the both sides. But at the end of the day, Syria cannot be uh, on the side of Saudi Arabia. And they know that when there is an existential threat against Syria, Syria will only the allies of Syria, such as Russia, Iran, Hezbollah, those are the ones who, who will come uh, actively to help uh, Syria and support Syria. The rest will probably even stab Syria again in the back. And I know this is something like a populist thing to say, but in Syria, the street speaks like that. And they, they believe that the Saudis tried to stab Syrians in the back in starting from 2013. It is very important to see that in 2011, when the regime change war started, uh, the United States, the CIA, told Qatar, tasked Qatar to overthrow the Syrian government. And they did, and they really tried their best. And in 2013, uh, when the Americans saw that the Qataris aren't able to do that, they tasked the Saudis 
to to do that. And in 2013, see what happened. There was a split in the opposition. Some of them were supported by Qatar. Others were uh, supported by Saudi Arabia. So this split happened only when Saudi Arabia and Qatar became uh, enemies uh, between 2013 and 2017 or 18. During this time, we also saw the split between Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Those are not coincidences. Those are all result of the disagreement between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And when Saudi Arabia decided to end this war in Syria and MBS said, we don't want to support these Wahhabi groups in Syria, what happened? The In one month, the Islam army... Jaish al-Islam and all these uh, all these groups in Al-Ghuta, they crumbled. And they all went to Idlib and then they uh, they escaped to Turkey. So were it not for Saudi and Qatari support for these uh, terrorist groups in Syria, there is no so-called rebellion or armed groups in the country. They're all supported directly by these regional countries, including the CIA. And for the viewers to know, this was one of the costliest covered operations in the history of the CIA. And the New York Times says that every year the CIA was spending $1 billion to continue this uh, covered operation in Syria. $1 billion is nothing uh, compared to how much the Qataris and the Saudis spent in the country. And I think the estimates are around $200 billion. And if you compare it to Ukraine, Ukraine, how much how much Ukraine received? $140 billion? Mm-hmm. $140 billion aid to Ukraine. And Ukraine's size is so much bigger than of Syria. In Syria, they dumped weaponry worth two hundred billion dollars, and a lot of the a lot of this weaponry came from uh, the warehouses in Libya. First, they overthrew Libya, and then they started sending all this weaponry, shipping them uh, to Turkey and from Turkey to Syria. One more. So Yemen, Yemen has been probably the loudest, but also the quietest in this conflict, Um, always been fiercely loyal to Assad and uh, the government of Syria throughout the civil war. Uh, Where does the relationship between Ansarullah and Assad stand right now, if there is one? Is there, it's a very interesting uh, question because uh, Syria allowed the Houthis to open an embassy in, in Syria in the past years. And um, and now it seems they asked the Houthis to leave the embassy and they are giving this embassy to the so-called government that has its head, headquarters in Saudi Arabia. Syrians, uh, Syrians are practical in these issues. Even when they tell the Houthis to leave the embassy, that doesn't mean that their relationship is now poisoned uh, with, uh, with the Houthis. They can reach into agreement with the Houthis that keep their same same normal security diplomatic relationship with them but under the table and they give the uh, the embassy to the hadith hadith government uh, for example in 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 damascus just to appease saudi arabia because you know there is now this reconciliation between syria and saudi arabia between saudi arabia and the iran so syrians are very very good in giving symbolic <laughs> concessions and making it look like it's a big step uh, ahead of reconciliation with with saudi arabia uh, um, this is what they. One of the Syrian opposition figures says it's the uh, hamburger strategy. The hamburger strategy is uh, you give your enemy the burger and you catch the meat in the burger, and the moment your enemy wants to eat the burger, you take the meat <laughs> from the burger and he eats the bread. And the Syrians are very, very, very good in this. Uh, they just give concessions and they make the impression that it's a huge impression to their rivals or their enemies. But it's nothing for them. If you want the embassy to be to be run by Hadi government, let let it be. But at the same time, they keep the same relationship with Houthis. They give them other offices and other places. And the Syrian Mukhabarat or the Syrian intelligence apparatuses keep coordinating with them the same way. I don't think the Syrians will ever cut their relationship with the Houthis. And uh, I think even if there is a big compromise in 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 Yemen. Uh, to shared powers or any formula brokered by Saudi Arabia and Iran, the Houthis will have a strong presence there in the political and military life. And you can see now they're trying to play an essential role in the Gaza war as well. They're trying to hit uh, Israel with their conventional weaponry. So, Kavok, um, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but obviously we know that Syria and Iran's uh, alliance dates back all the way to the 80s. Um, and they share a lot of common interests. Um, obviously, 
obviously in their opposition to, to Israel and to Western uh, influence and so on and so forth. Um, but I, I would love to know, kind of knowing that both countries have supported Hezbollah in the past, um, and this alliance kind of provides Syria in a way with uh, economic and, and military support. I'd love to know, oops, sorry, I'd love to know, um, since Hezbollah has this strong backing from Syria and Iran, how has its participation kind of shifted the balance of power in the region? And also what implications maybe does this hold for uh, stability regionally speaking? Actually, it's very interesting to know that in the late 70s, early 80s, Syria didn't support Hezbollah. Uh, Syria was against Hezbollah. Syria supported Amal in uh, the Amal group. The, uh, again, it was the Nabi Bervis uh, party and the Iranians supported Hezbollah back then. And, and Hezbollah and uh, Amal, they were fighting against each other. Two Shiite groups, they were fighting against each other during the civil war. And Syria and Iran, they were supporting opposite sides. And it was uh, back then, uh, I don't know if he was back then still the foreign minister, but Farouz Shara, who was later the foreign minister of Syria, uh, under Hafez al-Assad and he and also the deputy president of uh, vice president of Syria uh, under, with, with Bashar al-Assad, he brokered the deal between um, Iran, Syria, Hezbollah and Amal and all these groups. And they unified these groups together and they formed this uh, armed group in, in, in Lebanon, Hezbollah. And it was very important for Syria and Iran to be on the same side because otherwise they would have been a civil war between the Shiites themselves in uh, in Lebanon. Syria and uh, Hezbollah, they enjoyed very good relationship, but the the turning point which, which went from good relationship into strategic relationship was in 2005. In 2005, I believe, this is my conviction, that Israel and the United States, they assassinated Rafil Hariri. They assassinated the prime minister of Lebanon because they needed a trigger that can turn the, Sun the Sunnis in Lebanon against Syria. And this trigger was by assassinating Rafael Harib. The moment Rafael Harib was assassinated, seconds later, all the media outlets that you know and all these uh, politicians on, on uh, talking talking heads that you know, they all accused Syria. Like right away, they we didn't even know that Rafael Harib was assassinated. It was quite clear that they politicized it in order to threaten Syria with sanctions and with military intervention. And they went to the UN Security Council using the uh, Article 7 of the UN Security Council Charter, Article 42, uh, Clause 7. So they're threatening Syria with military intervention. And Syria had to withdraw from Syria, uh, from uh, from Lebanon. In three months, Syria prepared, uh, it, it withdrew its 40,000 soldiers from Lebanon. But what can, they have to keep something in Lebanon, right? So they kept all their weaponry all their weaponry in the hands of hezbollah this was the deal that hezbollah manages the military equipment of the syrian army that they left there and they gave all their warehouses all types of weaponry to hezbollah including um, good weaponry it's not like junk junk weaponry and since then hezbollah started to manage the interests of syria inside of lebanon and this was when the strategic uh, alliance started between Syria and uh, Hezbollah in 2006. Only one year later, uh, Israel invaded Lebanon and with the goal of completely eliminating Hezbollah, just like they say now with Hamas. And Syria said they are ready to intervene in the conflict if Hezbollah loses this war. Just like now Hezbollah says they will intervene if Hamas is going to lose this war. But uh, Syria started sending uh, its uh, missiles, rockets to, to Hezbollah even during the war. And Hezbollah used all sorts of Syrian weaponry in this war, including the anti-tank uh, rockets. Uh, those are Russian weaponry, the Cornet uh, rockets. It is Russia never sells this type of weaponry to non-state actors. It's, it's been sold to Syria, and Syria delivers them later to uh, to Hezbollah. For example, now Hezbollah is suspected of having, which I believe 100%, but it's just a report, but I, I'm sure they have it. They have the Yachund anti, 
ship cruise missiles. And those can hit 300 kilometers deep in the Mediterranean and they can sink the American warships. And that's why the American aircraft carriers and warships are now not stationed in, near the uh, eastern shore of the, of the Mediterranean. They are far away. They're 1,000 kilometers away just in a safe area because they know Hezbollah has this type of weaponry and they can hit the uh, Hezbollah. So speaking of this relationship in the region, it seems that for me, uh, Syria and Hezbollah, they have uh, become like they have established an organic alliance between them. They are shared military, uh, joint military operation rooms, and they coordinate between each other in their conflict with Israel, but at the same time in the regime change war in Syria. So it's a mutual interest both, between both sides. Hezbollah intervened in Syria first to protect its interests because they know if Assad is gone, a pro-American government will come, and that means the no more weapons will come to Hezbollah. And the, the new Syrian government, they will close the borders in the face of Iran. And Iran will also not be able to bring weaponry to Syria and transit to, to, to Hezbollah. And this is exactly why nowadays the Americans, they have forces in Al-Tanaf border crossing. Because Al-Tanaf border crossing, it, has, uh, it connects Syria to Jordan and uh, and Iraq at the same time. And through this route, Syria used to have its lifeline to Baghdad and to Tehran. And Americans blocked it for this reason. So the Syrians opened a new border crossing in Al-Bukamal area. And this is where exactly Biden bombed several times. In the past, since he came to power, he bombed it many times, this border crossing, because they know this border crossing is crucial for Syria. And that's why they have military forces there. And now the plan of the Americans and um, just before this Gaza war, by the way, they wanted to seal the border between Iraq and Syria completely. They wanted to expand their forces in Syria. And now with this current war in, in Gaza, the Syrians, Hezbollah, the Kataib Hezbollah in Iraq, Iranians, they all bombed the American occupation bases. So mm -hmm. you see this small alliance between Syria and Hezbollah, it expanded to the region. And now they are uh, joint, let's say, response against the American occupation forces in the region. The message is clear that if this war expands, the American forces will come under fire, not only the, the, the Israeli side, because they know that the decision making is in Washington, D.C., and they can stop this, um, this Israeli onslaught against Gaza if they want to, but they are just pretending that they're asking the Israeli side to be to drop nicer bombs and smaller bombs on, on, the, on, the, on the Gaza Strip. This is the only concern they have. They're just asking Israel to give, to give us a little bit of pause, you know, a few days of pause so that they can send some humanitarian aid and then continue it, but with smaller bombs, not the current bombs that Israel is using over the heads of the Palestinians in Gaza. What can you tell us, because now we're seeing these, these attacks from these lesser-known Iraqi resistance militia forces in Syria and Iraq on the U.S. bases. Um, what can you tell us about this group um, for our listeners? Because these aren't groups that we hear of often. And then a question from our listeners uh, was, what is what are the policies of the Syrian Socialist Ba'athist Party and the Iraqi Ba'athist Party? And why was there a disagreement? And how are they getting along now? Actually, there is this joint military operation room and the Syrians, the Iraqis, the Iranians and the Lebanese and the Palestinians, they all have representatives. This is not a war of this is not the war of Iran alone or Syria alone or Iraq alone. The danger for the American presence in the region is this growing alliance between state and non-state actors in the region. And Iran is has been has been at least a decade. They are building a network of alliances in the region between different dif different groups with different backgrounds, different religions, different sects. It, it doesn't matter for them if you're a Sunni, if you're a Shiite, as long as you believe in the of your country from the Americans and kicking out the U.S. occupation forces from the country, then they will include you in this uh, alliance. So what happened is the uh, this joint, let's say, response against the Americans was a quite clear signal that any broader response, if there is a regional war, it will also be joint. So I do not see that there is a difference between this uh, 
pro, uh, this, for example, non-state actors in Syria, for example, the NDF, there are some militias in Syria fighting alongside the Syrian government. In Iraq, in Iran, there are Afghanis, there are Pakistanis fighting, there are Yemenis fighting. There are so many nationalities fighting under uh, different flags, but the operation room, as I said, it's joint, and they are coordinating between each other. As for the... Iraqi Ba'ath Party, I don't know if there is still a Ba'ath Party now in Iraq. I don't think that they, they, they were completely dismantled after 2003 invasion. You correct me if I'm wrong, if somebody in the comments know better than me. But the problem with Saddam Hussein was really big. Saddam Hussein came to power at the same time Islamic Revolution in Iran. And um, there are clear indications, in my opinion, that Saddam Hussein's arrival to power was mainly to sabotage First, the talks between Iraq, uh, the former leadership of Iraq and Hafez al-Assad for geographical unity between the both sides. And second, it was clear for any observer that this was also an attempt to, from the CIA to bring an, uh, an hot, a hothead person in Iraq so he fights against the Iranian uh, revolution and against Khomeini back then. And he, once he came to power, he started this war in 82 against Iran. And he engaged with in, in, in a six or eight years of war against the Iranian side. And he used chemical weapons against Iran. And those were all supplied to Saddam Hussein by the Americans, by the French, by the Brits. He was their ally in the 80s. And uh, Saddam Hussein only became a villain when the Americans trapped him to go to Kuwait, <laughs> the Americans told him, literally, the ambassador of uh, Amer the United States in Iraq told uh, Saddam that they don't care if Saddam invades uh, Kuwait or not, because Kuwait was stealing the oil of, uh, of, uh, of Iraq during the uh, Gulf War um, between Iran and Iraq. So Iraq told the Kuwaitis to stop stealing the oil and um, they need to pay there uh, because they took lots of loans uh, uh, to finance their war against Iran. They have to pay this. And when the Kuwaitis didn't listen, he invaded Kuwait. And when, once he invaded Kuwait, Americans turned against him and he started imposing these sanctions. But in, in this, all these years, from the 80s, Saddam and Syria, they had bad relationship. And between Hafez and uh, Saddam, they were not on good terms. Syria st stood with Iran in the 80s in this war. Syria gave weapons to Iran. Syria gave knowledge to Iran to uh, build uh, ballistic missiles. The Iranians know this. They, uh, they acknowledge this. Some of the Scott missiles and the technologies that they they started building their own weapons. They came all from the Syrian expertise. And in the 90s, when Saddam invaded Kuwait, again, Syria stood with Kuwait, didn't stand with, uh, with Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was a danger for Syria. And Saddam Hussein also supported the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria and supported the PLO in Lebanon against, uh, against Syria. It's a cocktail of uh, conflicts in the region, non-stop since the 70s, since the 60s. If you want to go back and see what happened in the past and what's happening now, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing, in my opinion, that this region never uh, lived some peace, never lived some stability, and now it's continuing now in in the Gaza Strip, and it's very there is very, really serious serious um, possibility that this war could expand, and the Americans are very wary about this, and they don't want that. This is just my probably uh, the naive me. The Americans do not want the regional war, and uh, the their interests in the region they they will be uh, hit uh, severely especially when we speak about their interest in the Gulf and their, the flow of the energy and the prices. And the United States was engaged in a huge, big war uh, headed by NATO against Russia in the past two years. They spent hell of a money in Ukraine. They printed hell of a money in, in the past few years. The inflation is high in the, in the United States. The United States cannot sustain two big wars. And that's why they're now pushing Zelensky under the bus and they're telling him quietly, this was on, uh, uh, I think, MSN today, that, uh, bro, you have to now talk with the, uh, with the Russians, you have to strike a deal with the Russians, because uh, we cannot finance this uh, war anymore. And there is what they call stalemate. And this is not a stalemate. A stalemate means, a stalemate means that the Russians invaded 
Ukraine and they couldn't uh, conquer any land. And the Ukrainians couldn't uh, push the Russians back. There was a stalemate. This is not the case. The Russians occupied big portion of Ukraine, previously Ukraine, and they, they conquered these areas. They did the referendums and they now joined the Russian Federation. So there is no stalemate. There is a defeat for Ukraine. This is, this is a big difference, but the Americans are just selling uh, different terminologies to, to the public. Americans now, in my opinion, um, the, the Israelis are pushing them to this war and they have to protect their ally and they send their elite warships, uh, aircraft carriers, nuclear submarines. Those are not an indication for me that they're trying to deter Hezbollah. Those are indications that they're sending messages to Iran, to Syria, to Egypt, to intimidate Egypt uh, to accept 2.2 million refugees in, 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 in the Sinai. But as I said, the naive me says, if I were an American, if I were a politician in the United States, I wouldn't want a regional war in the region. It's not in my interest to have a regional war in the region where all these parties are allied against you and they can they can um, severely damage your interests and they can kill your personnel in the region. So before the Americans send their aircraft carriers, they have to send soldiers then because the aircraft carriers cannot finish wars. Aircraft carriers can be synced very easily it's not the 1960s and 1970s. It's not Cold War. People in the United States need to understand that these aircraft carriers can be hit and destroyed easily nowadays with drones, not even uh, rockets, not even missiles. So all this junk metal that they brought to the Mediterranean, they could be destroyed. And what they need, basically, they need all the military bases in the region to be in their disposal. They need to, to bring weaponry, equipment to establish air bridge, to bring all this weaponry to the region. Look what happened in Ukraine. After one and a half year, they couldn't even supply Ukraine with the howitzer um, uh, rockets, for example. They started to send them cluster bombs because they ran out of ammunition. So how are they going to finance and sustain a second front, a big war in the region when their industries cannot produce enough weaponry to continue this war. That's why I'm saying if I am an American politician and the leader, I wouldn't go to war in, in, in the Middle East. It's not in my interest. My interest is to now calm things down and convince uh, the Israelis to change government and pursue the peaceful path with the Saudis. At least try to have the Saudis on their side before they can uh, continue their project. But in, with the presence of Benjamin Netanyahu, do not under, underestimate the psychopathy of this uh, uh, of this leadership in, in, in Israel. I say this because since I opened my eyes to politics, since I was a kid, I can see and I can follow how much every year Israeli politicians become more monstrous and they become more... Uh, psychopathic in their approach toward the Palestinians and the region. And this is a suicidal approach for them. They're not giving any service to themselves and they're not giving any service to their allies. And they have tarnished their image and reputation uh, around the world among the international public beyond repair. Just ask, just ask any hundred person now in the, in the street here in Berlin, go to Paris, go to anywhere. People do not want to see these dead babies every day by the Israeli bombs. 4,000 babies, we are speaking. And there are footage and image uh, images of this. Not like the, uh, the 40 decapitated babies that we didn't find any photos up until this moment. If it happened, I would condemn it and I would, I, would, I, would, I would attack Hamas and I would attack anyone who did it. Show us the evidence. You cannot just come and say 40 decapitated baby while you are butchering babies every day, 200 babies every day in, in the Gaza Strip. Yeah, actually, <laughs> decapitated babies. Uh, I completely agree. I mean, I think uh, Israel kind of, the, the, the hope of uh, Israel kind of ended with Yitzhak Rabin. But um, so as this, obviously, this genocidal campaign, this slaughter in Palestine continues, and the conflict continues escalating. Um, interested in knowing, kind of, given the domestic challenges within Syria itself, how uh, are they able to, or in which capacity are they able to exert influence over um, this conflict and also its relationship with other uh, kind of regional actors? 
Actually, that's a very important question. Syria is unfortunately uh, it's in ruins. The economy is destroyed, and the the most important thing when you want to engage in war is uh, energy. You don't have energy. You don't have fuel. That's the problem. Like uh, if if you want to operate your tanks, you need the fuel, right? And how many days uh, uh, you can operate? F- uh, how, for how many days do you have a fuel in Syria? I don't think they have a lot. I don't think Syria can sustain a war that is over a month, for example, between Israel and the uh, other region. Therefore, the next war, if it happens, it won't be a conventional war with tanks and soldiers. Syria will definitely try to harm Israel uh, by ballistic missiles or rockets or drones in a different approach. Not like in the previous, in, in the past, in the 70s, in the 60s, soldiers fighting against each other, tanks are trying to advance. That only may happen, the only time I think that could happen if Hezbollah engages in this war and, and, and not engages like flying some rockets like they're doing right now. No, ground offensive. If Hezbollah wages a ground offensive against uh, Israel, as Scott Ritter said, it will look like uh, Hamas's attack against Israel will look like... Uh, uh, from uh, from a kindergarten child playbook, Hezbollah Hezbollah are very very strong military army, and people think I'm just being wishful thinker. No, I'm I have followed Hezbollah for a long time. Hezbollah has over hundred thousand soldiers. They are ideologically very strong. They are very disciplined. They have ten years of urban warfare experience in Syria, and they have since two thousand and six. They are training day and night. On, uh, on conquering the northern Israel. When was the last time Israel uh, fought face-to-face against another army? It was in 2006. And in 2006, uh, uh, I can assure you, there, there were towns in, in, in Lebanon where Israel tried to invade and conquer. They came with thousands of soldiers. Thousands of soldiers. Between 2,000 and 5,000 soldiers are moving in one direction. And the towns were protected by dozens of Hezbollah soldiers, and they couldn't break into these towns because Hezbollah, they're fighting against ghosts. Hezbollah is have established a city under a city. I was in southern Lebanon uh, and visited one of the museums there. Uh, Israel discovered a tunnel, uh, a bunker for Hezbollah, and they bombed it back then. So they opened it for the public to see what's this uh, bunker about for the, for the people. You, it's like a museum. You go and watch what's happening there. It's it's a. <laughs> I never seen anything like this in my life. It's a city under a city. It has electricity. It has a, a conditioning. It has lights. It, uh, tanks can move inside of these tunnels. So it's not like what Hamas has done. Uh, Hezbollah's uh, tunnels are so much sophisticated. The rockets and the missiles can come from places that Israel cannot see, from the mountains. Mountains open and the and the uh, hundred missiles can fly, and they cannot even hit the source of this place. So I think if that happened, if Hezbollah wages the ground offensive, then yes, because uh, because then Israelis have to send back two quarter, uh, two thirds of their army to face Hezbollah. Now the two thirds of the army is facing Hamas. But if that happens, they have to send back all their military to the north, and then this will be the opportunity for Syria, if we think about it militarily, to liberate the Golan Heights and conquer it, and then walk into the Golan Heights with tanks and soldiers, et cetera, et cetera, because they, it can be decisive. You can, you can change the course of the war in one week or 10 days. You don't need to f- continuously fight for one month because Israel will be busy in its two fronts between uh, Hezbollah and Hamas. This is the only time I think Syria can intervene in this war, taking into consideration all the destruction that was inflicted upon Syria and the destruction of the economy and the and the military is is a, they need to repair right they need to reconstruct the country first uh, but all this time that passed in the pa- in the past 12 years didn't stop Syria from allowing Hezbollah to operate freely in the region and say, and bringing them all the types of weaponry that they want and they need in this fight against uh, uh, Israel. And I think if there is an all-out war between Israel and Hezbollah, or even the most, even even the people who were following Hezbollah very closely, and they think that they know one thing or two about Hezbollah, they will be surprised, in my opinion, of the type of weaponry that Hezbollah acquired in the past 10 years, whether it's from Syria or from Iran.
sorry, I was muted. <laughs> I was going to ask another question, but I think you have to leave in four minutes, right? So maybe I'll just skip to the last one. Yes, I have my own live streaming now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're busy. Um, so, okay, so uh, what's next question? What do you foresee now uh, happening in future developments or I guess potential scenarios for, for the conflict? Um, what are your thoughts? I think Nasrallah's speech was detrimental in this regard. Uh, Nasrallah said very clearly, this depends on Israel. If Israel continues the ground offensive in, on the Gaza Strip, and there are two conditions here. One, they are on the path of defeating Hamas, which means eventually the project of ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians from the Gaza Strip and pushing them to the Sinai is on way. Then Hezbollah will intervene. They said it. We will intervene when this. And second, when Israel uh, conducts what is called preemptive strikes against whether Lebanon or Syria, because remember, they're also threatening Syria now and uh, other countries in the region. If these two conditions, one of these conditions were met, then yes, Hezbollah will intervene. And that means Americans will have to intervene. But remember here something very important. In the 1967 war that we started our conversation with, in six days, Israel occupied the West Bank, occupied the Gaza Strip, occupied the Sinai, occupied the Golan Heights. And now they have been bombing and trying to invade Gaza for three weeks and they couldn't uh, occupy. Look, the occupation of an area is not, is not uh, everything. We have to occupy an area and you have to stay in the area. That's the most difficult part. And Israelis cannot do that and they cannot tolerate big death toll among their army. Unlike uh, Hamas, unlike Hezbollah, those are the people who are ready to die for their cause. And not uh, someone who is coming from Manhattan or coming from Poland who, who, who has a double citizenship and fighting in the, in the army. Those people probably do not feel belonging to Israel as much as the people who are part of this region, right? And, and uh, I think if, uh, if this uh, war rages and uh, yeah, Americans do not stop the Israeli onslaught against Gaza... On the 11th of this month, Nasrallah will speak again, and we will see a different tone this time from Nasrallah, and everybody is uh, expecting and waiting that speech again. Uh, Hezbollah will never start a regional war or fight or wage a ground offensive if Hamas is able to fight and continue the fighting against, uh, uh, against the Israelis. Also, one of the reasons, because they don't want to steal the victory of Hamas. In their perspective, if Hamas is able to counter uh, Israel, this is their victory. Why would they intervene and try to claim victory at the end of the day? But when we see that Hamas needs our support, then yes. At the moment, Hezbollah's role is only to keep the Israeli army, uh, one third of the Israeli army busy in the north, half the missile capabilities in the north, and one third of the air force in the north. This is enough now to just... Uh, contain some of the powers of Israel in the north, otherwise everything will be uh, directed against the Gaza Strip. Thank you so much. Uh, amazing answers and um, really, really appreciate you joining us today, Kabok. It's a really pleasure to be with you. I hope we can join you again soon. Yes, and I hope it's not during a time change or a crazy schedule or anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the internet oh, no. stops 30 minutes before 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 the show. Yeah, daylight savings also messed daylight us up these savings. past few weeks. <laughs> we'll get through it. Yeah. We'll get through it. All right, Kavork, yeah, yeah. have a good show. And thank you all for joining in. You can get to Kavork through Twitter and YouTube. All of his links are in our description, and you can stick around and join him for his next show. Uh, we will be coming back on Saturday or Sunday. We don't know yet, but we don't know with who. It's a surprise for everyone. Like, share, subscribe to YouTube. Love you guys. See you next time.